This morning, if you're here as a new believer, maybe within the year, if you're here as a believer that's been one for 20 years or 30 years, I hope this morning that as we go through God's Word, that you will be encouraged that you will understand what God has prepared for you as a believer, that you, sitting here right now, will leave this place different than how you entered. It's not hard for us to look around us in the society in which we live to see frowns on people's faces and frustrations and anxiety and the different things that we're experiencing in our world today. But we have to remember as believers that This is only temporary. It's hard for us to grasp because this is tangible. You know, we can reach out and grab somebody and talk to somebody. Heaven is something that is waiting for us. So sometimes we have a hard time grasping God's glory of not only what He has in store for us, but even now, today, we can grasp God's glory. And a little illustration here about hope. It says, a well-known university, at a well-known university, there was a piano teacher that was simply and affectionately known as Herman. One night at a university concert, a distinguished piano player suddenly became ill while performing an extremely difficult piece. No sooner had the artist retired from the stage when Herman rose from his seat in the audience, walked up on stage, sat down at the piano, and with great mastery completed the performance. Later that evening at a party, one of the students asked Herman how he was able to perform such a demanding piece so beautifully without notice and without rehearsal. And he replied, in 1939, when I was a budding young concert pianist, I was arrested and placed in a Nazi concentration camp. Putting it mildly, the future looked bleak. But I knew that in order to keep the flicker of hope alive, that I might someday play again. The next night, or excuse me, I needed to practice every day. I began by fingering a piece from my repertoire on my bare board bed late one night. The next night I added a second piece, and soon I was running through my entire repertoire. I did this every night for five years. And it just so happened that the piece I played tonight at the concert hall was the same piece I was practicing all those years. Each day, I renewed my hope that I would one day be able to play my music again on a real piano and in freedom. We don't understand stories like that because maybe most of us haven't experienced that type of life. But I know that people that are sitting here this morning are going through difficulties. I know that they're going through the various trials. We're going to get into that as Peter does. We're going to look for God's glory in those trials. But I want to give you a little background on why Peter, oftentimes referred to as the Apostle of Hope, is writing this letter to young believers. During the first century under the reign of Emperor Nero, Christians faced many types of persecutions and hardships. And although they were not hunted and murdered, they were still the outcast of Roman society. They could expect persecution socially and economically from three different areas. First, the Roman government. Secondly, the Jewish population. 
And third, their own families. Almost all new believers would be misunderstood and many would be harassed, few would be tortured, and some even to the death. First of all, these Christians had no legal status in the Roman Empire. However, they were compelled to obey every Roman law. Secondly, the Roman government considered these Christians as part of the Jewish religion, thus making them a legal part of society, just as the Jews were. (laughs) However, the Jewish population did not appreciate being legally connected with this new movement, as they expressed in the book of Acts. Jewish people regularly harassed them physically, drove them out of their towns, and attempted to turn the Roman government against them. And as we know, they had an enemy in the Apostle Paul. Thirdly, they were persecuted by even their own families. Under Roman law, the head of the household had absolute authority over all its members. Unless the ruling male became a believer, the rest of the family could and usually did face many types of hardships. They were often sent away with nowhere else to go. And if they were continuously beaten, the Roman court turned their head. Peter may have written this letter specifically to those new Christians who were planning to be baptized or who already were believers. He wanted to warn them that what may lead, or excuse me, he wanted to warn them of what may lead ahead, lay ahead as they began their new walk in Christ. Peter's first letter makes sure that he sends encouraging words to those readers. The amazing thing is that this letter is as relevant today as it was then. We may not face the types of hardships they did, but we can look around us and know that as believers, we do face persecutions. Whether they be from our government, whether they be from our own relationships that we have, and sometimes even our own families. If you went to the Middle East and announced that you were a Christian, there would be great consequences. We cannot escape the pain or the illness of life, but in those difficult times we have the same God that Peter encouraged those early believers to trust in and lean on. We may face times of discouragement, despair, stress, heartache, emotional breakdowns, physical ailments, and so on. But our God remains the same. Peter's letter to those early believers is a letter to us today. As I was seeking God's wisdom and direction about what to teach on this morning, it was in front of my face and I couldn't see it. And as I struggled to create something, God reminded me, what are you dealing with? What is happening in your life? And I find it almost ironic that those things that God wants to point out to us and clarify are the things a lot of times we don't see. And so my prayer here this morning is that God will open your eyes this morning, that you will see God's richness, God's glory. There's hope. There's joy. And through that hope and joy, we should witness to the world around us if we possess 
that hope and joy. I hope that this morning you will be encouraged, energized, and elated of what God has given by His great mercy and grace. Father, we thank you this morning for gathering us here around your word. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would have dominion in this place, would take the power of your word, the Lord would energize, encourage, and give us the joy that you so richly want us to understand and comprehend. Father, we want to leave here grasping your glory in a real way, in a way that maybe we haven't before. I know I haven't. And I pray through this that, Father, that you would reveal that to each one who hears. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for giving us this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone here this morning, you walked in, probably not knowing or expecting what to go on, but just by your sheer presence, each one of you have inherited $10 million. Isn't that great? Just by coming to this place, somebody set aside $10 million for each person who is here. Some of you are glad you're probably here now, right? Some of you might have got up this morning and said, I don't want to go, it's a holiday weekend, I don't know if I can, you know, I want to sleep in or whatever the case may be. But you had no idea, did you, that when you came in this church and sat in those chairs, that all of a sudden you inherited $10 million. What is $10 million? Well, if you compare it to somebody like Bill Gates, it's probably pocket change. Or if you uh, compare it to somebody who's the head of Google or Facebook or whatever, it's a drop in the bucket. But to those of us sitting here this morning that are probably middle-class people, $10 million is a lot of money. Most of us can probably get a paper and pencil out and immediately write a list of what we would do with that $10 million. There's a catch, though. There's a catch. And the catch is that you can't get it yet. It's there. You know it's there. You've been guaranteed. You have a signed piece of paper that says you shall inherit $10 million, but you can't get it yet. How would you live your life? Would you live it with anticipation of that money? Would all of a sudden your anxieties and all the things that have bothered you, frustrations, go away? How about knowing that someday all your bills will be gone? Out. It's amazing what a monetary thing like money can do to our thought process. Peter wants us to not lose sight of the provision that God has, but the glory. The glory that not only we possess now, but the glory that we're going to have later. As we look in our text, it's far greater than the most precious gold there is. In other words, it's greater than $10 million. It's greater than 50 million. It's greater than whatever you want to put on it. But in our world that we live in, because $10 million is a tangible thing, Most of the time, we can relate to that. But in God's glory, sometimes we are hindered. But this morning, I want us to look at these truths that Peter is writing to those people. There are 
some realities that Peter wants us to get a hold of. He wants us to grasp them with the gusto and the, the fervor that he did. And going through, as, as, as Steve has in the past weeks, about Peter, we know that Peter was in the forefront. He was the mouthpiece, good and bad. He was the one with passion. And as he's writing this letter, you can almost sense his passion to wanting to really tell the people of the exciting thing that God not only has now for them, but will have for them. Well, let's turn to our text, and we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We're going to stop there. How many times do we bless God? How many times do we really understand what that is? In order to understand what that is, we have to understand what God has given to us in a real way. Now somebody who may have been a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever, who God has taken out of the gutter and given new life, understands that. Because their life has changed. Those that are sitting here this morning that may be new believers, understand that because their lives have changed. But sometimes we, who have known the Lord for some time, get complacent. And we lose sight of that. And my encouragement this morning is that we grasp hold of that. Whether you're new or whether you're uh, experienced, whether you are mature. But if you're here this morning and you're a believer, this message is for you. And if you're not, this this message is for you also. First, what does it say? Blessed be God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His, what, great Mercy. Remember, mercy is God withholding what we deserve. Because we're sinners, we deserve a consequence, a great consequence. But God stepped in in Christ through his great mercy and has caused us to be born again. God's the one who does the work in our lives. Let there be no mistake. I know there's arguments and debates on both sides. But Scripture tells us that it is God who grants us salvation. God is the one who causes us to be born again. His great mercy, not our works, produce a new being called a child of God. Let me ask you this question. How do you know that you were born from your mother's womb? How would you answer that? Maybe you would answer, because I'm alive. I exist. I'm here. You see me. And you'd be right. And that's all the answer most of us would need. You might not answer, well, I know I was born because I've got a birth certificate here in my hand. So that proves I was born. Or... 
You know, I went back in the archives of the hospital where I was born, and son of a gun, there's my name right there, and the doctors and nurses who delivered me. Or maybe you have your birth certificate at home with your little footprint on it that guarantees that that's who you are. Well, try putting your foot on that piece of paper now. It doesn't look anything like it. Or you might have people that knew your mom and could testify. I know she was pregnant because I saw her. And sometime later, she went away for two or three days and she came home with a baby. That proves that you were born. You would simply say, I know I'm born because I'm alive. But suppose I ask the average evangelical churchgoer, how do you know you're born again? How many would answer, because I'm alive to God. I have a living hope. I have a living faith. I once had no spiritual life, and now I am alive spiritually with spiritual appetites and spiritual enjoyments. Once I was dead, and now I'm alive. I know him. I trust him. I love him, and I put my hope in him, and I live for him. The proof that we are born again is our life today, how we live our life today. Some might answer, I know I'm born again because I did what you must do. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed the prayer. I walked down the aisle, and I accepted Jesus. I've got a card in my pocket to prove it. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because that's true. That does happen. But if that's all you have, without... The other things, you're only born again in word. One reason is that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we had nothing to do with our physical birth, just as we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. But we want to take credit for the way we live, the way we act, and who we are. And that gets in the way with what God wants to do in our lives. We want to take up that mantle. We want to have the control. We want to have the power. It's not surprising that that kind of Christianity grows up around self-centeredness, self-pride, and just things that have people look at who we are and not who God is because we're veiling. We're veiling that glory. So really according to his mercy, caused us to be born again. God did it and should get the glory for it, not us. The third thing Peter wants us to see here is God raised Jesus from the dead. If God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God, then the resurrection is about him and what he did. When we put our trust in that, we partake of that same resurrection. When we obtain that resurrection, we obtain that inheritance. Interesting words here, imperishable, undefiled, and won't fade away. God promises an inheritance to those who are born again. God is the Father. He is the source of our inheritance. How many kids give their parents an inheritance? I don't know of any. 
There may be some out there, so I'll leave that open. But more times than not, the parents leave an inheritance for their kids. Sometimes it's great inheritance, sometimes it's small, but whatever the parents have, it's given to the kids. Isn't that amazing? God is the giver of this inheritance. All the way through this passage, He is the fountain of hope. He is the one overflowing, and who, uh, and we who are His children in Christ are the recipients of that at every point. And finally, our inheritance is reserved or kept or guarded in heaven. Who keeps it? The one who gives it. So if you look at the first five points of these verses, I haven't forgotten about undefiled and fading away yet. I'll get there. But we see that blessed be God for what? For His great mercy. We see blessed be God who causes us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed be God who raised Christ from the dead. Blessed be God who promises an inheritance to those who are His. And finally, blessed be God who is keeping, guarding, protecting that inheritance that one day will be each one of us who call upon His name. So what is the hope of our salvation? First of all, we are born for glory. Secondly, we are guarded for glory. Several things here that as we go through this in verse 5, it says that we are now being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those words, we are now being protected, are a continuum. We are continually being protected. There's nothing that's going to remove that continuance from God's hand. Nothing we do is going to destroy that. So we are constantly being guarded by God, assuring us that we shall safely arrive in heaven someday. It's amazing the same word is used to describe the soldiers soldiers guarding Paul in Damascus when he made his escape in 2 Corinthians 11. So we as believers are not kept by our own power, but by the power of God. Our faith in Christ has so united us to him that his power now guards us and guides us. We are not kept by our own strength, by our own faithfulness, by our own glory. Until Christ returns, we will share in the full revelation of His great salvation. And we have that now. We have that now. Maybe the assurance of heaven is not something that brings you peace. It's always difficult sometimes when you're going through something that you're saying something that we haven't seen before. We can't comprehend just yet. I know that there are times when my brother went away and he went to Italy and he talked about all these wonderful things in Italy, brought back pictures. And someday you should go. Someday you should be there. And I remember going through my mind, there's no way I'm ever going there. I can't afford it. Well, guess what? You can't afford heaven either. But God 
has given that to those who he has called. That inheritance is yours. Let's look at those words imperishable because that's what it is. Undefiled and fade away. Well, not fade away. Have you ever had anything in your life that didn't decay? Have you ever gone in your refrigerator and you've looked in the back and you go, what the heck is that thing? And you pull it out and it's growing hair? That's perishable, right? Or the other day we're going to make some dinner and I open the drawer where the potatoes are and son of a gun, those potatoes were had little things growing out of them because I, I forgot about them. And after a period of time, they start to break down and grow things. They were becoming perishable. Our lives, our bodies are perishable. I talked with some of the other day and we were doing some work and I looked at my watch. I was getting tired. It was only 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I thought, what? what, what 1 o'clock? I'm tired already? Then I remembered, oh yeah, I'm not as young as I thought I was anymore. And every day I look in the mirror and go, I'm perishing. (laughs) But in God's protection of that inheritance, that doesn't happen. Undefiled. Wow. We could talk about this all day long. In the green society in which we find ourselves... There is pollution everywhere we turn. Whether it's caused by man or animal or the air or the sun or whatever it is, there's types of pollution that we're being bombarded with that we have the responsibility to clean up. It ain't going to happen. This world is going to perish. It's polluted. Have you ever gone to a, a lake or a creek And you look at it and the water is not moving, but you see this green stuff growing all over the top of it called algae. That's because it's stagnant. The water is stagnant. It's not moving. It's not flowing. There's no life there. So it just sits and starts to decay. And algae starts to form. That's what sin does in our lives. But there's no sin in heaven. So there's no pollution. Fading away. This one I really enjoyed because as a youngster, as a teenager, I remember my first car, I had a 69 Camaro. And I thought, you know what? It's just not normal. I want to have it painted. And some good friends of mine who got into the painting business said, hey, we'll do it. We'll give you a good price. They didn't tell me what they were going to do. They told me they are going to paint it silver with black stripes. Great. My perspective of what they were saying was totally different than what they did. When I picked up my car, at first I went, oh, that's beautiful, you know? That's really wonderful. They had put stripes, the regular stripes, if anybody knows about cars, down the middle, which are great. But they also put some things on the side, and they fogged it in and did all this stuff. They wanted to show their creativity. But one thing was true. That thing was shiny. That thing was beautiful, and I wanted to maintain that forever. So every week, I waxed that car. You're not supposed to wax a car every week, but I wanted that shine. Well, as years went by and my times were dedicated in other areas, I couldn't wax the car every week. I couldn't even wash it every week. 
And slowly but surely, that beautiful luster started to fade. No matter how much I put wax to it, it needed to be wet sanded or had rubbing compound. It, had, it needed something more to bring it back. And even then, it wouldn't be brought back to its original luster. Our inheritance will never lose its shine, its luster. It will always be there. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering, okay, I have this inheritance. It's never going to tarnish or decay. It's never going to be polluted or stained. And it's never going to fade away. To me, that's awesome. That's grasping God's glory of what He has waiting for us in that place. It should cause us to live our lives in a different way, knowing that. Just as it would cause our lives to live a different way, knowing we got $10 million waiting for us in a bank somewhere that eventually we're going to get. But we're not there yet. Secondly, the hope of our salvation, it's ready to be revealed. It's incorruptible. Its inheritance is protected. And it's protected through faith by God's power. But now there's preparation for glory, and this is the second part, the joy of our salvation. Here's a list of ten things that will rob you of your joy. Make little things bother you. Don't just let them, but make them bother you. Lose your perspective of things and keep it lost. Don't put first things first. Get yourself a good worry one about which you cannot do nothing about. Be a perfectionist and condemn yourself and others for not achieving perfection. Always be right, perfectly right all the time. Be the only one who is right and be rigid about your rightness. Don't trust or believe people or accept them at anything but their worst and weakest. Be suspicious of all. And impute ulterior motives to all of them. Always compare yourself unfavorable to others, which is a guarantee of instant misery. Take personally, with a chip on your shoulder, everything that happens to you that you don't like. Don't give yourself wholeheartedly or enthusiastically to anyone or anything. And last, make happiness the aim of your life instead of bracing for life's barbs through a bitter and sweet philosophy. Use this prescription regularly and you will be guaranteed not to have any joy in your life. Makes sense. There's people here this morning that can identify with some of those things, that can relate to some of those things. But what I'm saying is we do, in the trials we face, face those things, but we don't need to live there. All right? Verses 3 and 5, the point is that our inheritance awaits us in heaven, imperishable and unfading, and that we are kept, that it is being kept for us. So no matter what type of distresses we face, we can look beyond them to the sure future that is coming and that is ours. And eventually it will be worth it all. However, in verse 6 through 7, the point is different, namely that the trials themselves have a large part in getting us ready to enjoy that inheritance. 
We don't just look beyond our trials to the sure hope, but let us look this morning at God's design in those trials and see how God is working in our lives through those trials. First, where do we get the idea that trials are designed from God? Well, if we look at verse 6, let's go there. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. This word, if necessary, and the word so that, talk about who or what is making this distress possible. The answer is obviously God is making this possible. Peter makes it plain that Christian distress only happens if God wills it. For example, in Peter 3.17, 1 Peter 3.17, it says, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Also, further on in chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So when Peter says, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, he means if God deems it necessary. And in my life, I know he does. Why would God do that? Why would God will those things in our lives? And we come to that little phrase or the word, that or so that. And he gives the reason. So that the proof of our faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he takes gold as a perishable metal and compares it to our inheritance, which is imperishable. Now, there is gold that's 99.9% pure or 99.8% pure, but it's never 100%. No matter how much you refine it, it'll never be 100%. And so I think it's an interesting observation that Peter makes between a precious metal and our precious inheritance. The design is that the distress in our trials would refine the genuineness of our faith. Sometimes we ask, why, God, why? Around us we see marriages break up, people with diseases, rebellious children, loss of jobs. And we ask, why, God, why? If these things have happened in your life, you may have the answer sitting here this morning of why. I know I do. God is preparing us. For that glory. We must keep in mind that God, that the plans He has and performs are all for preparation. Nobody knows exactly what's in store for us in heaven. We've been given bits and pieces, but it's so much more. In this, Peter uses the word trials rather than the word tribulations or persecutions because he was dealing with general problems that Christians faced as they were surrounded by an unbelieving world in which they lived. So we can identify with these early believers about trials 
that God is going to design for us. The amazing thing is, is that each one of us, God has a certain design of a trial that only we can relate to. Now, we can relate to others going through difficult times, but there are some trials that only we can really relate to. Why? Because God has designed it that way. One day, a boy and his father went into the mountains. They took shelter from a storm in the lee, in the, in, excuse me, in the, the lee of a great boulder that lay like sleeping giants across the crest of the lonely ridge. As the two looked upward, they saw the wind lay its grim hands on the mountain pine that towered from the summit at the ridge. It was a sentinel that could escape no danger, an outpost to receive the first shock of the enemy's attack. Savagely, the wind tore at it, shook it violently, and howled through the branches. To the boy, the tree, strong though it was, seemed about to be torn in pieces. As he yelled, Look, Father! what the wind is doing to the pine. The full fury of the blast just then made the pine shudder and sway. It heaved desperately against the black sky. Storms are an old story to the tree, said the father. A tree like that lives and struggles from the time it's high enough to catch the first breath of wind. The strongest trees are always those that have weathered the greatest number of gales. Besides, the question is not what is happening to the tree, but what is happening in the tree. The pine does not really seem to mind fighting the storm, does it? No, because it is able to withstand the strongest wind, the father answered. It is the same with us. It really doesn't matter what happens to us, but it really matters a great deal what happens in us. That's what trials are for. Well, let's look at God's design of trials there in your outline. There's five designs here that we pull from God's Word. First of all, in God's designs, our designs are brief. It says, even though now for a little while. The funny thing is, is brief is relative. If you say, hey, that guy can hold his breath for a long time. We might be talking about two or three minutes. But if we talk about a person who has been at a job all his life, then we have a different understanding of the time frame, don't we? So it is with this phrase, little while. Compared to others and compared to our eternal inheritance, it's but a short time. It's only for a moment. Peter shares James' perspective on this life in James chapter 4. He says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, and then you vanish away. Compared to the length and greatness of the future God has planned for us, the distresses that we have in our lives today are small compared to eternity. They may not be small to those of us sitting here, but if you look at from God's perspective... That should give us the hope. Also, secondly, in God's design, our trials are grievous. The word in verse 6, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter did not suggest that we take a careless attitude toward trials because that would be deceitful. Trials produce what he called a heaviness. 
The word really means to experience grief or pain. And it is the same word described our, that described our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and the sorrow he was going through. Deep grief. It's funny, though, that Peter throws in this little thing. In this you are rejoicing greatly. He wants us to understand that don't put our eyes on the circumstances and trials we find ourselves into, but look beyond them and have the joy of our salvation supersede those things. Thirdly, in God's design, our trials are varied. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The NIV says all kinds of trials. It's not just one kind of trial that Peter has in view because the word he uses is a word that literally means variegated or many colored, many types. He also uses the same word to describe God's grace in 1 Peter 4.10, which to me is a comfort. Because no matter how varied our trials are, God has a grace to match that trial. Fourthly, in God's design, our trials prove a genuineness. The proof or the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. When gold is melted in the fire, the impurities float to the top and finally they can be removed. When the refining fire is over, the gold is even more valuable. So it is with our faith. There are impurities in each one of our lives that take away that luster, that take away that shine. Maybe you're sitting here and you, there's anger in your heart. Maybe there's envy about someone or something. Maybe you're worried or anxious about something else in your life. Maybe you have a hard time with pride. Each one of those impurities take away that luster of faith. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Too many professing Christians have a false face a false faith and this will be revealed during the trials of their life whenever I think of trials I always think of the Old Testament Job and the things he went through and yet at the end he says I shall come forth as gold in Job 23.10 he understood those trials and finally In God's design, the result of this refining is that our faith will receive praise and honor and glory. Our trials don't last forever, but just for a season. And as God permits His children to go through the furnace, God keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. I love that. God is the one in control of those things. Some of us need more heat. And when we get there, we get it. 
Some of us need more time. And when we run out of our own strength, we get it. And all the trials that God sets before us, they are designed for His glory, for our purpose. And finally, they are testimony to others of God's glory. What good would it be if we suffered for no reason? What good would it be if God has called us to be His children and yet live like the world? What good would it be if we just went on as life as usual and nothing changed? What good would it be? What glory would it bring? The testimony of our salvation is important in the lives that we live today. In this story, a deacon of a congregational church in Boston many years ago He said to himself, I can't speak in prayer meetings. I can't do many other things in Christian service. But what I can do is I can put two extra plates on my dinner table every Sunday and invite two young men who are away from home to be at my table. He went along doing that for more than 30 years. He became acquainted with a great company of young men who were attending that church. And many of them became believers. His influence, his love, his outstretched arms convinced their hearts that there was something different. When he died, he was buried 30 miles from Boston. And because he was well-known, a well-known merchant, a special train was chartered to convey the funeral party. It was made known that any of his friends among these men who had become believers through his influence would be welcomed by that special freight car and set aside for them. At the funeral, 150 of them came and entered that process in honor and memory of that man. For 30 years, he set those two dishes, and after 30 years, 150 had eaten at his table. That's amazing, the influence that one man had with a simple, outstretched arm of the testimony of his salvation from a dinner plate. Not all of us can stand on street corners and profess God's word. Not all of us can teach a Bible study. Not all of us can do many things. But what God has for us and what we're doing presently, God can use if we allow him to do that. How does that happen How can believers enjoy God's glory now? We have to have a proper understanding of who God is. I think in our society we lose sight of God's holiness. And God is just another being out there. But it's much more. He says in verse 8, He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you did not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. If you're a believer here this morning, do you truly love Christ? Even though you haven't seen him? 
The early church didn't have this word. We do. We have an understanding of who he is in such a great way because this is his testimony to us so that we can take that testimony to others. Your love for Christ should express that. Secondly, have you trusted him? Now, those of you who have come to know the Lord have definitely put your trust in him for your salvation. But do you trust him on a daily basis? Do you trust him through those difficult trials? Do you trust him when things just come unwrapped? See, we must live by faith and not by sight. Because we haven't seen him yet, but we know he is. Our faith means surrendering all that we have to God and obeying his word in spite of those circumstances and consequences. And in that, we should have joy in our lives. So many times we come across people who we talk to and, oh, I go to this church, go to that church. Oh, yeah, I go there. You know, know, and they're down. And they're putting all their faith in a church or they're putting all their faith in some other entity. But if we took that and we put completely our trust in Christ, those things fade away because those things are perishable. Those things will decay. Those things will fade away. We may not be able to rejoice over the circumstances, but we can rejoice in them. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. If we have the proper perspective of who we are and who he is. Each experience of trial helps us learn something new and wonderful about our Lord. Abraham discovered new truths about the Lord on the mount where he offered his son. In the book of Daniel, the three Hebrews learned of God's truth in a fiery furnace. Paul learned the sufficiency of his grace when he suffered with this ailment in his flesh. That joy produces an unspeakable and full of glory type of joy. And we are receiving that constantly. So if you're here this morning and you're going through some difficult times, as Peter urges those new believers, rejoice in whatever, wherever you are in your life. If you're struggling with your faith, rejoice. If you're struggling with a physical ailment, rejoice. If you're struggling with some emotional things, rejoice. Because God is taking those trials and refining your faith to get you to a place to trust in Him more. For Christians, it is glory all the way, past, present, and future. When we trusted in Christ, we were born for glory. Presently, we are being kept for glory by His sustaining power. We are also being prepared for glory as we experience various trials. But we can enjoy His glory here and now as we love, trust, and serve Him 
We will live for him. Turn over to the book of Acts and we'll close with this. Acts chapter 3, it's there on your outline. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple in the ninth hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order that he beg alms to those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wow. Peter says, I don't have $10 million for you this morning. There's no bank. There's no money. You came here this morning expecting something. It's not the $10 million I told you about in the beginning because that is perishable. But what I do have for you this morning is the same as this lame man. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you're unable to walk. You're in a sense lame spiritually. You are a sinner. You're born poor. You're bankrupt because you cannot pay the debt that's owed. You're separated right now because you can't enter the temple. But out of mercy, by God's great mercy and healing hand, as Peter touched him, he was able to enter the gate. But he didn't stop there. Because of that, he was able to walk, leaping and praising and glorifying God with the new life that he now possessed. We as believers that are here this morning can do the very same thing and should do the very same thing. Do we literally go out and jump and leap and everything? Maybe. But our attitudes, our motives, the way we live our life should leap and praise and rejoice because of what God has for us. The inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away and is waiting for those who are called His children in a place called heaven for that day which we will all fully understand. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. 
Thank you for giving this word to Peter, for encouraging those early believers that I hope and pray that this morning, Lord, it encouraged those ears who heard this morning. God, and if there are those here that are struggling with this, maybe they can identify with the lame man, Lord. Maybe they're unable to walk. Maybe they're struggling in a place of their life where they can't understand what is going on. God, I pray that you would open their eyes through the power of your Holy Spirit. They would see the hope, the joy, and the testimony of the salvation, Father, that you have. Lord, I thank you this morning for all that are here. I even thank you for the trials and struggles that we are going through even presently. I pray, God, that those trials will purify our faith so that, Father, that as we go into the world in which we live, people will see a luster in who we are. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.